Father, um, I just pray that you would help us be knit together into a community that would just um, bring you joy. That you would get excited about our community and point at it and say, that's what I had planned, that's what I wanted, that's what I, I designed. It's the nature of love to bind things together. So if we love, if you can fill us up with love, we will be knit together. So Father, just break us, shape us, change us, speak to us. We pray that in Christ's name. We're doing something a little different this morning, something I've always wanted to do, by the way. Um... And, uh, and I'm going to preach and then just cut short at like a half hour. Because this morning I walked in and told um, Matt Summers, I was like, you're finishing the sermon. And then you're leading us into worship. Um, so the worship is all at the back end. And I would just ask you not to leave, not to get up, not to whatever, and just to hang around. Because the whole plan here is that it all rests on the gifting of Matt Summers to be able to take and pull all of this together make it somehow meaningful and relevant to us, and then to channel that into the worship of Almighty God. Um, and that, that's on Him um, to do. But I'm just super excited to let that kind of organic, collaborative thing happen. And so, especially with the text we're going to look at today, um, if we can't worship after this, um, then there's something really sick in this community. So let's look at uh, the text in John 8. If you have your Bible, you can turn to it. We're at the back end of John, finishing out chapter 8. And it's a continuation of kind of a whole dialogue that's been going on with Jesus in Jerusalem, um, talking about his identity and the nature of his call and, and arguing and teaching and interacting and um, sometimes heated, sometimes pleading. Um, some famous verses coming out of this. If the Son has set you free, you will be free indeed. And, and Jesus trying to talk about the nature of Him as Savior, as, as the Messiah, as the one who liberates, as the one who is here for our benefit. And, and He's going on and on, and we get to this back end. And uh, I'm going to pick it up just a little bit before verse... Um, actually, we'll just take it in verse 54. What's going on is Jesus is arguing with them now and saying... with with the religious leaders and those that are skeptics. And he's saying that um, God is my father, that, that he's my witness, that that's where I'm getting my authority from, that he's the one that's glorifying me. I'm only doing what I, I see him doing and what he shares for me to do. Um, and, and so how would you think I'm demon-possessed or this or that or the other? And they, they claim that Abraham is their father, and Jesus turns it around on them and says, No, your father is the devil. Because if your father was truly God, was truly right, was truly true, you would know that I am true as well. Yet you don't and you resist me. I am truth and you're against me, which means you guys stand against truth. You stand against truth. It's, it's the height of legalism where um, religious tradition is the authority rather than scripture being the authority, and Jesus says, you don't stand for truth, you stand against truth, which is a, an amazing indictment on legalism. And So this is kind of what's been going on, this unbelievable wrestling in verse 
54, it says this. If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim is your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. And if I said I did not, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. Let's just hang on for a second there. Jesus is saying, like, you claim in Abraham as your father, that he's the authority, you're underneath him, and you're pointing to him. And Jesus is saying, he, Abraham, like, was looking forward to, was wanting my day, my era, my, my whole thing that I'm doing. That's what he was looking forward to. It was greater than him. And it's, it's kind of a, a fascinating debate about what exactly did Abraham see and know. And, and certainly one of the things that, that Abraham, that Jesus is kind of pointing to, is that Abraham took his son, the promised one, um, out. He took Isaac out and he was going to sacrifice him because God was testing Abraham's faith. And so the fascinating thing is Abraham doesn't tell his wife why. Okay, so he doesn't tell his wife um, he doesn't tell his son either. Because there's something really fascinating about the things that God says sometimes. He says some things that no one else will understand. Have you ever experienced that in your life? That sometimes God speaks some things to you or calls you to do some things, you know, to go to South America or to, like, give away your money, which seems really foolish, or to... Spend your life not working for yourself, but helping poor people that, that, that will continually need. And you just pour yourself. God calls us to some things. And when we try and explain it to other people, they don't get it. Because it's not rational. Faith sometimes is not rational. It's something that we can't point to and explain why. It's something that we can only hear and say yes or trust, or place our faith, but we can't ground it in something obvious. Honey, I'm going to kill our kid. Why? Well, it makes sense. Let me explain it to you. I'll write it on the board. Um, the God we worship is so big that he calls us to do some things that, that others sometimes won't understand, and sometimes we won't even understand. Yet we're called to do them. That's why God said he was testing Abraham's faith. Will he really follow me? Will he, will he really trust that, that I've got it all under control? So he calls Abraham to, to be tested this way. And Abraham goes, and he doesn't even tell his son what he's doing. And at the last minute, God provides the sacrifice. God provides the sacrifice. And, and certainly, Jesus is talking about this whole thing, and he's saying, you don't get it. This was a foreshadowing of, of God sending the sacrificial lamb, me, um, that, that you wouldn't have to die, that things wouldn't have to keep dying, that I once and for all will be provided by God to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. I'm the Messiah, I'm the Savior. Abraham longed to see my day. He rejoiced in my day because this day is a good day. Uh, we won't go to it now, but there's a psalm which talks about um, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it, right? The first sermon I ever preached in Walhalla, South Carolina. There was 80 people and they were all related. Just different. 
small town South Carolina. It was the first sermon I ever preached. And I preached the whole sermon on that. This is the day that the Lord has made our rejoice and be glad in it. And I thought it was a song. I didn't even, ha- I didn't even know that it was in the Bible. Because my mom, like when I was a kid, she would rip the covers off me in the morning and she would try and sing obnoxiously to try and wake me up, you know, out of paper route. So I'd go do the papers, come back, go to sleep. And then when she tried to wake me up for school, I was just like, I'll kill you. <laughs> Don't. And she would sing, this is the day that the Lord... You know that song? Um, I will rejoice. Get Grace back up here to sing it. But, um, so I thought it was this cool song that had like cool biblical like meanings and stuff like that. So I preached the whole sermon on it. And then like um, about a year later, I was in a bathroom and I'm standing there and I look over and there's one of those crochet things, those, those old school crochet things. And it says, this is the day the Lord has made. I think it's like Psalm 86. And I was like, wow. Like, that would have made the sermon so much better. Um, like, who, who knew, you know? Um, but what's funny is I went back to that and really studied it. And the fascinating thing is David is talking about the day of the Lord. You know, we, we have the tendency to, we're always, we want every day to be perfect. We keep pushing away this knowledge that we don't live in utopia yet, that, that heaven is not quite yet. We, we always want to push that away and start every day in prayer like, maybe this could be the day, God, that you finally get it right. You know, um, I can tell you what a perfect day would look like, God. If you're really God, you can do it. Let's, let's try again. You know, and we kind of have the sense that, that this ought to be the day. Yesterday wasn't the day. T- today, though, is the day that, that God has made, and, and I can rejoice and be glad in it if he kind of makes it all work out. We have that tendency, and the, the biblical writers, I think, were much more attuned to the messiness of life. Life is relentlessly difficult. And they long for the day of salvation. Not this unique, particular day, each and every day. Um, God's the genie that just makes our days perfect. No, God is big, and He will rescue, and He will save, and He will deliver, and we wait in expectation of that day. This is this. The day of salvation is the day the Lord has made. What, what would that look like if a community of believers sat in anxious expectation for the day of deliverance? So this is partly what Abraham's looking forward to. He's looking forward to the day of salvation, to um, Jesus coming, and Jesus comes up to the religious community. And instead of living in that expectation and that hope and that longing, they've got their ruts and their routines and their traditions. And here it is, the day of the Lord, and, and it, it misses them. Jesus continues, or the, the passage continues, and they respond to Jesus when he's talking about Abraham, and he's saying, you are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Uh, 50 years old in that day and age was considered the, the perfect age for leadership, for, for maturity, for being able to rule or take control, like, you know, respect. Jesus is not even the age of respect yet to, to be in a position of authority here and now. You're not even 50 yet, and you're claiming to have seen Abraham. Um, what, what are you talking about? And Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was born, I am. 
Now, I took Greek in, in seminary. I hated it. So I switched my major so I wouldn't have to take Hebrew. Um, but I, I took four semesters of Greek, and the, the one thing I, I really loved, um, they say with Greek that the whole idea is that... Uh, Pen's leaking. Sweet. Um, they say the uh, the whole idea with Greek is that you go from seeing the Bible in black and white, and it's as if when you can read it in Greek that it's in color. Like it just adds dimension. Um, of all the things that it's supposed to add dimension to, the Gospel of John is my favorite for two main reasons. And the first one is this: the use of Amen. Which looks a lot like what? Amen. Uh, we finish our prayers with amen. Do you know what it means? It means truly or verily or let it be so. Let it be true. And it was a common finishing clause in, in that day and age. That, that this is a, a statement, a, a prayer or whatever. And, and it truly or let it be so or let it whatever... And Jesus does something through John, as John writes the Gospel of John, that's really unique, is he uses this in a pattern by saying it twice, Amen, Amen, and putting it at the beginning of what he says. So instead of saying it at the end, Jesus moves it to the front and he says, Truly, truly, or verily, verily, I say unto you. It's, it's a... It's a a way of showing authority or command that's a, a, a unique literary device for John. He, he takes it, doubles it, puts it at the beginning and says, when Jesus talks, it has weight. Truly. I'm not talking of myself. I'm not giving you principles. I'm not giving you wisdom like your teachers give you. I am talking truth to you. Verily, verily. And so this passage, if we go back to it, in the NIV it says, I tell you the truth, black and white. <laughs> Jesus is in the thick of it with these religious leaders, and he begins this phrase, and he says, Truly, truly, verily, very, amen, amen, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. That's the second thing about John that I loved. It's the ego a me, not let go of my ego, but ego a me. Um, this word here, a me, is the verb to be, okay? But in the Greek, it has the, it, it, the different tenses bring in the person, first person, second person, third person, whatever. The, the verbs, like a lot of other languages other than English that make a lot more efficient use of words, um, it, it says not only to be, but it says who is to be. It says I am. I am is, is in that word, Amy. So this word here, ego, um, means what? If you know Freud or anything like that. It's the word for I. It's the Greek word for I. So what 
John's famous in his gospel for this, um, and we see it some other places in the synoptic gospels too, but it, it is, I, I am. It, it's overstated. It's a redundancy, which is done for effect. It's a copy of the Greek Old Testament. The, Greek, uh, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and then translated into Greek before Jesus' day. This is, this is the, the famous reference of Jesus, if you want to turn there, in Exodus chapter 3. In Exodus chapter 3, you see God appearing to Moses, and it's the first time God is going to name himself, kind of shade in the outlines and say who he is, give his identity, kind of how the people of Israel are supposed to relate to him. And in chapter 3, verse 14, God says to Moses, I am who I am. The Hebrew word is Yahweh. But this is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. So Jesus, through John, is saying something emphatically here. Truly, truly, I say to you. Before Abraham was, I am. Now, John uses it a bunch of other places in the Gospel, John. I am the whatever, I am the this, I am the light, I am the water, I am the truth, I am the... And there's a debate about how many of those were, were meant to be read as references to Jesus' divinity. Nobody, nobody um, disputes this one. Why? Because grammatically he would have said, um, before Abraham was, I was. I existed before Abraham. He wouldn't have said present tense, I am, in that formula. I mean, it, it's grammatically not there. And it also lacks a, uh, a predicate. It's just hanging. And so everyone agrees what Jesus is doing here is Jesus is saying, look, I'm talking about my authority. We've been debating it, we've been debating it, we've been debating it. And I'm telling you that I have a witness, that it's God. He's the one that sent me. He knows who I am. I only do what he says. And then they say, uh, you know, you're not even 50 years old yet. How can we see you as being that credible? You're talking about Abraham and all this. And Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. I am. I am. It takes it to a whole, whole different level. And it wasn't missed on Jesus' audience if you look at how chapter 8 concludes. They picked up stones to stone him. There's this spontaneous response on behalf, on behalf of his listeners that this is blasphemy. Jesus is equating himself with being divine or of God or with God, of, of being all the way up there at the top notch, and they just pick up stones because that's what you do for blasphemy, for heresy. He, making himself equal with God, how, how in the world can he do that? And they pick up stones. Now Jesus, we're going to see this. Um, he's, he's living out Isaiah. If you want to turn to Isaiah chapter 43. The, when we come back in two weeks, we're going to talk about Jesus healing a blind man. And he does it in a ridiculously unique way that draws attention to himself because he is here trying to tell people, 
I am fulfilling prophecies. I'm that guy. I, I, want, I, want, to, I want you to see that I'm fulfilling the formula so that you can believe in me, trust in me. I'm the guy I claim to be. And so let's just read a little bit of Isaiah, but listen to what it says in, uh, starting in verse 10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord. And apart from me there is no Savior. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed. I am not some foreign God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord that I am God. Yes, and from ancient days, I am He. No one can deliver out of my hand. When I act, who can reverse it? And this passage begins before that with the, the servant, the chosen one of God, that He is going to lead those who are blind out. That He's going to do these amazing things that show that He's a Redeemer, that He's a Savior, that He's God's instrument or vessel. So when Jesus transitions from this scene, He begins to do the things that demonstrate that this is who He is. Okay, that's just a lot of the text, okay? And it's a different sermon, I think, if we were to talk about God saying, um, I am. God said it back in Exodus, and it would be, I think, a whole different sermon there. What we're talking about now is Jesus claiming this of himself. And I think it sets up an incredible tension that's missed, that's, that's just wholesale missed, because we stand in our third-person um, seat or chair, and we spectate or we observe or we just take it in. Jesus is saying this to these guys. Who do I agree with? Oh, Jesus, yeah, I agree. He's the I am. Those guys are probably wrong. Um, that's a cool little passage. I think it's one of the more important ones. Yeah, sweet. Whatever. And we do exactly what Jesus' listeners do. Jesus' listeners are walking through everyday life, and they got bills to pay, and they're having fights with their spouses, and their kids aren't obeying them, and they're doing everything they can to get by, and their health is bad, and they're not getting enough sleep at night. And they come up on Jesus, and Jesus is just an average dude, and they're trying to live out this, this life of faith, and they're trying to worship God. And then all of a sudden, Jesus says, I am. And they're like, what? What am I supposed to do with that? I mean, you just, Jesus, dude... <laughs> I mean, just be a pastor. You know, just give me some principles. Just tell me some advice for my life. Just, just you know, teach me some of the texts um, and, and so that I can grow in my understanding. Just be a good guy. Be a good pastor. You can even be prophetic. I'll tolerate it. But man, you just took it to a whole new level. What am I supposed to do with that? You see, Jesus' claim to authority is not one about us accepting a teaching principle. It's one of us either accepting or rejecting His claim over our lives. When I um, started reading, I was 22, thought I was going to die young, um, really, really was scared to death. Uh, 
told my mom, send me a book on why, I, why you think I should be a Christian. She sent me Josh McDowell's More Than a Carpenter. Um, and, and I was reading this, and I, I, there was a real tension in my mind. Either I don't believe this, and it does not matter. And so that famous Dylan phrase, better to burn out than to fade away, like was in my mind. Like, okay, dying young might not be a bad thing if it doesn't matter. But if it is true, if Jesus was who he claimed to be, then he has claim over my life. And I was aware of that, like as I didn't even believe and was reading. I knew that it was either one or the other. If Jesus is him, then I am not. Or I must submit. Or the right response is to follow. Like the, this claim of authority isn't about something out there and it's Jesus whispering in our ear and we're evaluating it. You know, I mean, is that a good thing or not? Let me see how that fits. Oh, that's, dude, you're wise and you're smart. Yeah, let me go put that into my life. Let me act on that. Like, this is not what Jesus is doing. He spent chapters and chapters trying to say, I am. And that changes everything. Everything. Because now it's about us, not some nugget. What are we going to do? How are we going to respond? Are we going to submit? Are we going to follow? Are we going to recognize? Are we going to worship? Are we going to trust? He is in authority. And we, we read it, not quite grappling with that reality. Um, Bonhoeffer, who's a favorite theologian of mine, wrote a book on Christology. And he's writing it. He didn't actually write it. He gave Christology lectures at this underground seminary uh, right before World War II. And it was shut down by the Nazis and all this. But after the war, they took the notes of all of his students and they, they pieced it together. And it's just this really cool thing. And he says, when it comes to Christ, we have the wrong starting point. We start as if we are to judge and determine who he is. How do you get two natures in one? How do you get the divine in a human life? How do you exist and then be born? Like We, we come with these theological questions, says, um, says Bonhoeffer, and he says, you know what it does? He says, that logos, that, that ordering, reasoning principle, is something that God gave man at the beginning. You're supposed to determine the names of these animals and rule over creation and have dominion and put it all into a right place and organize and structure. So then we come to Jesus and we're like, oh, I know how to do this. Let me organize and structure and lay it out logically and see what I mean. Oh, this makes more sense. We can put it better. And we, we naturally do that. And Bonhoeffer says when we come to Christ, we cannot do that. Because what it does is it puts the capital L Lagos underneath us and it doesn't work that way because Christ is capital L in the beginning was the word Lagos the word was with God and the word was God that Jesus is the one in authority over us he's the one that, that organizes and determines and places and has dominion he is the king and so Bonhoeffer says the first thing we must do is submit and then understand Faith, seeking understanding, as Augustine would put it. We can't come first trying to judge because God will never be big enough then because we're going to put him in a box and sanitize him. 
Bonhoeffer uses the, the parable of, or the story of um, Jesus being in the Pharisee's house. The Pharisee's so abs- absorbed with making his determinations and judgments that he doesn't even um, show proper hospitality to Jesus, doesn't even wash his feet, doesn't even treat him like an honored guest because he's so focused on the intellectual debate that's going to go on. And then the, the, the prostitute, the woman of ill repute, comes in, falls at Jesus' feet, cries on his feet, wipes it with her hair, and Jesus says, see, she gets it. She understands the starting point. She understands who I am and what that means. And Bonhoeffer says, we begin by first submitting and looking to Christ. We don't begin, as the Pharisee did, to try and make determinations or judgments that we first have faith and then God proves himself faithful. We first say, I have questions and I don't understand, but I trust, and then God shows us and opens our eyes. It's amazing to me. When I talk to atheists, um, they always get mad at the hiddenness of God. The hiddenness of God. They start with the problem of evil. Why is there evil in this world? And we all run into that, right? If there's a good God, why does he allow evil? And I said, your problem really isn't with um, the problem of evil. What do you mean? Yes, it is. Why is a good God? I'm saying, no, your problem's not with that. Because if you had an explanation for that evil right there, you'd be okay with it. I'm like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, if God was here and told you that that evil is justified because of what he's going to do from it or how he's going to reimburse it, so to speak, or whatever, you'd be like, oh, okay, that's, that's okay. It works out. The equation, the math works out. So your, your problem isn't with evil. It's that you lack an understanding of why that evil is justified. So, so your problem is that God's not giving you the answer. Your problem really is, is the problem of hiddenness, not the problem of evil. And they're like, okay, whatever. Um, and then they say, well, then God shouldn't be hidden. This is Bertrand Russell's big thing. What are you going to say when you get to heaven if you find out there really is a God? I'm going to say, God, you didn't give me enough reasons to believe in your existence. You were too hidden. And I say, I say to people, I say, well, the problem of hiddenness is a problem if... God has an obligation to reveal himself the way we expect that he would reveal himself. And they're like, well, what do you mean? I said, well, God says all throughout Scripture that he's a hide-and-seek God. Hide-and-seek God? What are you talking about? Like, he's hidden, but if you seek him, then he will reveal himself to you. All throughout Scripture, God shows that he's a hide-and-seek God. If you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. If you look for me, you will find me. God says he's a hide-and-seek God. So it's not that he um, has this obligation to be visible. What you have to do is say, this is how he's revealed himself to be. Is he justified in being such a God? And, and then there's a whole bunch, you know, we don't have time today, but there's a whole line of reasoning that says, yeah, he's perfectly justified in making himself available to those who seek him. He's perfectly justified in asking us to initiate with him. Does that make sense? He's perfectly okay to say you first need to trust. And then I'll show you how all of Scripture points to this moment. And all the New Testament points back to this moment. And everything you know in your gut points to this. If you trust, I will reveal. And most of us, when we would give our testimony of faith, would would echo that. You know what? Didn't make sense. And then one day, I just trusted. And then, bam! 
God was waiting until I trusted so that he could reveal. So Bonhoeffer says, you know what? Um, we have to have a starting point of Christ where we recognize his authority. Jesus says to these, these Jews, before Abraham was, I am. You're missing the whole authority question. We're debating here when you should be looking to me and saying, yes, tell me, what is, reveal, we'll follow. And you miss it. And we miss it too. When I was in high school, um, the coolest thing going was the Vietnam War. I know that sounds weird. But if you guys remember, like, the 80s, um, Rambo, coolest movie ever. And then there was, like, a, a TV show called Tour of Duty, and I was in high school, and I literally believed that I'd missed my, my calling. I mean, you know how ridiculous that sounds now, right? I literally believed that I was born in the wrong decade. I, should, I was made for the Vietnam War. I would have just been so, like, cool and, I mean, all these movies made me think this way. And so I'm sitting back just watching TV shows. And, like, in my mind, thinking, <laughs> yeah, I sh you know, I should have been in the Vietnam War. And what I've realized um, as the 90s and then, you know, this decade kind of came along was that I, was, I didn't really understand the Vietnam War. I was sitting in my chair with a third-person perspective and pulling out certain bits of data. I wasn't confronted with the reality I wasn't put into that reality first person where I had to deal with the Vietnam War. And we do that with Scripture. We look at this and go, man, those, those religious leaders, man, they were so stupid. They didn't really get who Jesus was. Um, I would have done different. And then we shut our Bible and we walk out and we do not realize that we are confronted with that same reality right here, right now. I am still is. I am. I am still exists. I, I ran into the craziest thing. I'm going to blog about it as soon as I get eight hours of sleep and <laughs> drink enough coffee. But I ran into something um, in the last couple of weeks that just baffles me. And it's this. I keep running into Christians who are planning to sin. I mean, they're planning to orchestrate their life to do something they know is wrong and act as if it's no big deal. I mean, where I mean, it's just it's wild to me. God is so distant from them in reality, but so close to them in, in entertainment or third person, I, I know what's in the Bible, or I hang around religious people, that they can actually plan to completely do something that, that, that rejects God. It just screams, I don't trust God. It screams that I think I can do better with my life than God. It screams that I don't care that you said it's wrong. Um, I don't think it's that big of a deal. It screams, God, you're small. And I'm just, I mean, multiple people, and I'm like, that's just perplexing to me. Like, I, really? You're planning to sin. Not, not like one little action, but to like take your whole life this direction. That might, might be you this morning. I mean, only you would know. 
Um, but I think it's more common than I, than, I, than I think we think. You know, and I've got to go back and check my own life, maybe. Maybe we all need to check our lives. But I think it's a lot more common than we realize because we keep Jesus there as a great religious figure back in history. And we won't let him be a, our God or our King or our Savior or our Lord or our leader right here and now. See, Jesus' audience was willing to recognize the greatness of Abraham. Why? Because he's so far away. But they weren't willing to recognize the greatness of Jesus because it was so mundane and so clear. Like, I sat through a three-hour dance recital on, on Thursday night, and, um, and now I'll never let anybody critique the length of church ever again. Um, I mean, I contemplated... <laughs> anyways. Um, three hours of dance recital, and it was hot like this. The air conditioner was off, so you're not going to get any grace there either. Um, but it was really interesting to me, and I f forgive me if you're one of these people, because it'll offend you. But um, there was like a mom's, like, older lady dance crew. They really could dance. But it just seemed really weird to me. I mean, it was just in my life right here. My, my little three-year-old had hopped around earlier, and now there's like these moms dancing. And I'm just like, it just, it just doesn't make sense. It just seems doesn't seem right, you know? And I just was, it just seemed off to me. And, and I told Tamara later, ah, it just really didn't seem right to me. She goes, yeah, me either, you know? Um, and then what I realized is I turn on the TV every day and watch commercials or videos or whatever where there's 30, 40-year-old women dancing all the time. And it never strikes me as odd. It struck me as odd because it was in my little life these religious leaders were willing to say Moses and Abraham are huge. We need to follow them and we need to obey them and we need to submit to it and we need to revere them and we need to have them high in their authorities. And then Jesus gets right in, in the middle of their life in their sleep deprivation and their, their little petty arguments and their day-to-day -day schedules and their headaches and their stresses and he comes right in and they're like, oh, authority is awkward. See, you know, Abraham, yes, Moses, but you're just, you're not, you're not even 50 yet. You're right here in my life, and you're, and you're right here you're in my life, just like everybody else. You're awkward. You, you don't fit. It's hard for me to do anything with you. I, I can't worship you. I can't submit to you right here, right now, where it's in my face. I, I don't want to grapple with how how the consequences of that would just go on and on and on and on. I, it's just awkward. Get out so I can go back to Abraham and Moses. And the Holy Spirit is here now convicting you, your conscience. Romans, we could go to Romans 1. You know God. You hear from God. You know what is right. You know what is wrong. You know what it would be to follow all the way because you've read the things about sell all you have and give it to the poor or fight for injustice or to not live for this life but to live for the next life. You've heard those. You know them. We keep them out at bay. But when Jesus comes in, when the Holy Spirit really is, I am right here, right now, whoa, it's too much. It's overwhelming. Get out. Let me go back to the book of John where it talks about the religious leaders 2,000 years ago, how they didn't quite get it. And I'll tell you what I think about that. And, and, and I've got good thoughts, so I'm a good person, and, and I'll keep it there. 
And oh, by the way, I hit a roadblock in life, so I'm just going to deviate because it's not that big of a deal. And I'm going to plan to sin. Matt, you almost ready? Let me just make this statement and then um, we'll let Matt kind of transition us. Hopefully pull us to a point where we can fall on our knees for a God that is so much bigger than our lives. And if we really understood, hear me now, if we really understood, we'd realize that He is so much sweeter than the pleasures that we think we have to run after through sin. The petty things that we're holding on to and not letting go of, or that we think we have to chase to get, those, those pleasures that we think are so much more important than God are not as sweet as He is. creates a tension, right? It doesn't go down well. It doesn't digest well. It will after you accept that He is who He is and that He has claim over your life. And when you submit, the rest of it will go down. 